Please remain standing and turn with me to Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when peoples rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth, We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts 27. Read the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 26. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further... We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But... The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently... Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, 
they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up, one of our favorite family movies was the Swiss Family Robinson, about the family gets stranded on a deserted island and so on. And, and if you've seen it, you probably remember how it starts. The opening credits are this terrible storm at sea, right, where the wind is just lashing, this big ship uh, it's being driven helpless before the wind. Well, imagine how intrigued I was as a little boy when I think it was my, uh, my big sister told me, you know, that's not a real ship. It's not even a real ocean. Actually, it's a little model of a ship, and it was all filmed in a bathtub. Um, now, that wasn't strictly true. It wasn't a bathtub that it was filmed in, and, and that may not be what she actually said. That may just be how I pictured it in my mind, and it kind of stuck. Um, but it is a fact. It is a fact that a couple of weeks before the filming started on the island of, Tab- of Tobago, um, or is it Tobago? I don't know. Somebody tell me afterwards. Um, Walt Disney sent one of his special effects uh, artists to a completely different location, to England, of all places, that tropical island, um, to film those opening shots of the shipwreck. And yes, they used a miniaturized model of a ship, um, not in a bathtub. It was uh, bigger than that. It was in a large tank, and they had these seven uh, Spitfire engines from like fighter planes whipping up the wind to make the uh, whitewater waves and everything. Well, um, anyway, after I found out that the ship in that scene was just a model in a tank, and you can imagine that from then on I was a little bit less impressed with that opening storm scene. Maybe disenchanted a little bit, uh, knowing what went on behind the scenes. But on the other hand, on the other hand, I was a lot more impressed with the people who made the movie. Their creativity, their skill. For better or for worse, I think that opening scene probably still impacts the way that I sort of visualize this storm at sea in Acts 27. Um, But I bring all this up because I'd like us this morning in Paul's sea adventure uh, to try to see with the eyes of faith 
what's going on behind the scenes. Let's see that maybe there's more going on than meets the eye. That maybe some things in this tempest-tossed scene are not exactly as they seem. So let's look at this passage in three parts this morning. First, we'll call the calm before the storm, verses 1 through 12. Second will be just the storm, verses 13 to 20. And then finally, the calm within the storm. The calm before the storm, the storm, and the calm within the storm. The first thing that is not exactly as it seems comes to us right away in uh, this whole picture of Paul being put on board a ship to begin being transported to Rome as a prisoner to await trial by the emperor. The the, the first ship that they get on from... um, to, to, from Caesarea to Myra on the ship from Adramidium. You can think of that as kind of a connecting flight. Uh, in Myra, they change ships, like you change a plane at an airport. Uh, this is just at a seaport. And when they find one that's sailing for their final destination, which is Rome. Um, you notice they're, they're flying commercial here. They're not taking a government ship. They're just booking passage on whatever commercial vessel happens to be going that direction. Now, to all appearances here, uh, Paul is at the mercy of overwhelming forces completely beyond his control. There's the, 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 the juggernaut of imperial power. There's the uh, force of arms of the centurion and his soldiers. And just behind it all, there's just the slow but relentless turning of the wheel of Roman justice. But you take a step back. You think, wait a second, what if there's something else going on here besides what meets the eye? So first of all, let's remember that Paul's stated intention ever since at least the tail end of the third missionary journey has been, one way or another, to visit Rome. That's been his plan. Chapter 19, verse 21, Paul leaves Ephesus, resolved in the spirit, it says, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. This is Paul's plan in his letter to the Romans, uh, which is written in Greece and Corinth during that long roundabout trek uh, back towards Jerusalem eventually, with many stops along the way. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1. He says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, Romans, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, he says. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So we have to ask the question, who is really in charge here? It's not Festus, the governor. It's not Julius, the centurion. It's not the ship's captain. Look at what's happening. Once again, what we're seeing is the risen, ascended Lord Jesus from heaven, ruling over the events, shaping the destinies of his apostolic servants for the spread of the gospel from heaven. The Lord Jesus hasn't only provided Paul with free boat tickets to Rome, courtesy of the Romans. 
He's doing one better than that. He's given Paul an entire entourage, a bodyguard to keep him safe along the way of Roman soldiers. Think of the soldiers guarding Paul from escape. Okay, that's a more negative way to look at it. Really, you think about the protection that would have offered to Paul that he wouldn't have had traveling alone or with a couple of friends. This is what the Lord Jesus is doing to get his servant to Rome. Now, notice in verse 3 how the centurion uh, treats Paul very kindly. He makes it work for his friends to take care of his practical needs. He's allowing Luke and Aristarchus to travel along with him as his companions, as his helpers. Um, we have to remember here that Paul is not traveling as a condemned prisoner who is, has been found guilty and is appealing a guilty verdict or a sentence. Paul hasn't been found guilty of anything. In fact, the only people to, to the people who have listened to him give his uh, defense against his accusers have outright, outright said that he's innocent, and yet they're sending him on to Rome anyway for reasons other than justice. So you can see here that the Lord Jesus is really continuing to vindicate Paul. He's arranging these circumstances for him to travel, not only with a bodyguard, but with friends to care for him along the journey. He's showing that this is his special servant he's going to care for all the way to his destination. Now, lastly, look at verses 9 to 12 for this section. Now, at first you might notice um, on, on the surface that Paul's advice is rejected. That the centurion doesn't listen to him. He listens to the pilot and the owner of the ship instead. And so you might think, well, that's bad. Look at how Paul is being ignored. How awful. And of course, the centurion uh, lives to regret uh, not listening to Paul. But again, stepping back, let's not miss the, the surprise factor here. How offbeat it is in verse 10. Just that Paul would be in a position to offer advice to the centurion at all. Paul's the prisoner. Since when do prisoners get to have this kind of voice, this input into how the decisions get made about how they're transported from point A to point B? And yet Paul does. And in this whole chapter, really, the people who are officially in charge demonstrate over and over that they are not in control, that their decisions are going awry, that things are not turning out as they expect. Paul, the prisoner, on the other hand, time after time, breaks through as the voice of reason, the one who has insight into what's really going on in the situation, the one who knows just what ought to be done, even though he's not always heeded. And this, again, is illustrating for us, pulling back the curtain on that behind-the-scenes reality that Paul is the servant and representative of the risen, ascended Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of creation, the creator of the sea that they're sailing on, of the ship, of the sailors, who is using this vessel to accomplish his plans for his servant, whatever the intentions of each of the other human characters might be. And so just as in the courtroom scenes, uh, Paul knew then that he was seated with Christ in the heavenly places at that moment, far above all the rule and authority and power and dominion of the movers and shakers of Judea who had him on trial. So here at sea, we find Paul speaking with that same steady calm and confidence. He is so much more than a prisoner because he's a servant of King Jesus. Well, we can see this play out in another way when you consider the storm itself in verses 13 to 20. So uh, one writer mentions in passing some similarities between Luke's account of this storm and 
uh, the description of the storm in Jonah chapter 1. In Jonah uh, 2, you may remember how the sailors, for instance, uh, throw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. Except in this case, uh, there's a lot of con- there are a lot of contrasts, too. You could say that Paul is kind of an anti-Jonah. Uh, in Jonah, the reason that the whole ship and its crew are in danger is the rebellion of God's servant. It's Jonah's disobedience to his mission. Here, it's the opposite. Paul is the reason here that the soldiers and sailors are going to survive the storm. It's because there's a servant of Christ on board the ship. That's why this ship is under Christ's special care and protection. But for all those contrasts, if you, again, step back and look at them side by side, think about this. In both cases, Jonah and Paul, the destiny of that ship is determined by what? Not by the plans and intentions of the people who are apparently in charge. It's the servant of the Lord who is on that ship. It's his relationship to his master and the call, the mission that the Lord has given him. Christ the King from heaven is directing the course and destiny of this ship with Paul at the center of his plan. He's leveraging all of his sovereign power over the winds and the seas and the sails and the tackle and the crew and the captain, bringing it all to bear for this one purpose of revealing something that would not have been visible without this storm. There's something special about this man, that he is under the special care of one whose power far transcends the skill of the mariners and the, the might of the soldiers. It's very important uh, to read this passage also with Luke chapter 8 in the back of our minds, where the miracle where Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Master, we are perishing, the disciples say. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? And he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, Psalm 107, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. description of how this storm would have felt to the occupants of this ship, tossed up and down and giving up all hope in the end. But how does that psalm go on? It says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Now, in this case, in this case, the storm is not stilled, is it? It's not made to cease, as in that psalm, or as in Jesus' miracle in Luke chapter 8. The winds and the waves are not hushed. They keep raging. And yet, who is the one in charge in this situation? Who is sovereign over this storm just as much as? as that one in Luke. Well, it's the same Lord Jesus. 
The same Lord Jesus who calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee on that day is now on this day sovereignly preserving and protecting his disciples, showing them his power in the midst of their peril. Christ is, is continuing to authenticate and vindicate Paul and his gospel message, not only in the, the calm and pomp and circumstance of um, the, the courtroom, like we saw with Felix and Festus and, Agas- and, and Agrippa, but now he's doing it in a different way. He's doing it on this chaotic, uh, wind-blown sea. And that leads us finally to the third section that we're ending with today, what I've called the calm within the storm. Notice that uh, Paul speaks before the storm, verse 10, but we don't hear him speak again until verse 21. Right after Luke says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It's when the last little glimmer of hope has been extinguished. The spark has gone out. That is when the voice of Christ's servant breaks in once again. That is when Paul says, well, not just cheer up, guys, there's still a little bit of a chance left. It's when all hope is lost. It's in that moment of despair and helplessness that Paul says, take heart. The revelation of God breaks in here when from a human point of view, in the natural course of events, things are beyond hope, but the Lord is committing to act supernaturally here, to break in with hope from above into a place where there is no hope. This is not mere optimism that Paul is offering to them. It is faith in the promises of God. So he says, yes, you should have listened to me in the first place when I said not to sail from Crete, verse 21. And he's not saying that to rub it in, just to say, I told you so or something. He's saying it to persuade them to listen to him now. If I was right about the bad news, then listen to me now that I'm telling you this good news, that there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And how do I know that? How do I know that? Well, an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship told me, don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, uh, many of these men would have believed already that gods of some kind had a role in controlling the weather and the safety of their voyages. But if Paul's testimony here is proved true, then they're going to be confronted with the reality that the true God, the true Lord of creation, is Paul's God. The God to whom Paul belongs, God whom... Paul worships through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again the comparison and contrast with Jonah 1. In Jonah 1, Jonah tells the sailors, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when they throw Jonah into the sea and it becomes calm, those sailors, it says, feared the Lord exceedingly, worshipped him at that point. Now, in this case, it's it's not by throwing Paul overboard that these men are going to be saved, uh, as in Jonah's case. This time, it's by the opposite. It's by sticking with Paul. It's by staying close to this faithful servant of God. That's how this crew and these passengers are going to survive. And why is that? Well, it's because Paul belongs to the God who made this storm, who is sovereign over this ship and its destiny. And he has... That God's promise. They're going to be brought safely through. 
This is why we can describe what Paul is offering here as the calm within the storm. So often when we, when we pray for ourselves, for each other, we focus on asking God to take away the hard things that we're dealing with, to protect us from or prevent the, the difficulties and sorrows and fears and tragedies of life. And we're not wrong to do that. But we also need to remember that God has not promised us an, an easy pleasant, fair-weather voyage as we live out the calling and the mission that he's placed upon our lives. In fact, he's actually explicitly told us to expect quite the opposite. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2. See, often we wish that the Lord would answer our prayers the way that Jesus responded on the Sea of Galilee. Just calm the storm. Just make it stop. Give us blue skies and sunshine again. But you see, as we follow the shape of Christ's life, that life of suffering that came first, leading to glory in the end, very often our experience is a lot more like Paul's experience on this sea, not the calming of the storm, but instead this calm within the storm. It comes from a settled confidence in the promises of God. I'm reminded of Jesus' wonderful assurance to his disciples in John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, or you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. See, the peace that Jesus offers there is not the absence of tribulation, the absence of trouble, the end of suffering for now. It is a peace in the midst of pain and loss and tragedy and and the hard, long slog that life sometimes feels like in the sight of heaven. Take heart, Jesus says. Take heart, Paul says in this passage here. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. It may not be easy. It may not make sense in the moment. It may involve... All the things that you would typically count on to keep you safe and secure falling to pieces around you. But in the midst of it all, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. Be still, my soul, as another hymn says. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide for you, as he did for his servant Paul. Why? Because in every change, he, faithful, will remain. He's the same God now as he was then. Be still, my soul. Why? Because the waves and winds still know today the voice that ruled them while he dwelt below. 
So don't forget that although the Lord Jesus did calm that storm on the Sea of Galilee, when it came to the biggest storm of his own life, he could have made that storm cease. But instead he sailed right into it, passing through the judgment waters. The wrath of God, bearing your sin and condemnation on the cross, is a sacrifice to satisfy the justice of God that your sins deserved. See, even then, even on the cross, even in the midst of the storm, the Lord Jesus was being upheld and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Even in that ultimate agony, he could commit himself into the hands of his Father, trusting that the cross was not the end, that it was a gateway to the resurrection, to the new creation, to, to, to exaltation and ascension and glory, and sitting down on the throne of heaven where he sits now in Acts 27. And see, brothers and sisters, that is that glory in Christ is in store for us too. The hour really is hastening on when we shall be forever with him, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored, when he makes all things new. See, in the, in the meantime, in the middle of the storm, now, got to remember that he has given us, in his word, a glimpse behind the scenes. And so what, what apart from Christ, feels like the uncontrolled chaos causing us to, to freeze with fear as instant death on every wave appears. See, God's word pulls back the curtain, zooms out the camera, lets us see the tank, lets us see the Spitfire engines and the model ship, and he reminds us that in the midst of it all, we are safe. We are safe in the palm of his hand that holds the whole world and all the seas like a drop in the bucket. And we're safe not only when that storm ceases at his word, but when at his word the storm goes on, and yet he promises us peace in the midst of it. So with that confidence, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this peace that you have promised. Not the end of difficulty, loss, pain, sorrow, and tumult in our lives, but joy and peace rest in your promises in the midst of it. And also the hope that one day every tear will be wiped away. And although we are seeking to be content, knowing that that day is likely not today, Lord, we do ask that that day would come quickly and that you would give us patience and perseverance to endure to the end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.